may be seated. And at this time, I'd like to invite the kids. Normally, we dismiss third grade and under, but today we're just going to dismiss fifth grade and under to do uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes. So kids, fifth grade and under, you can head to the kids' church. Okay? Have fun. Well, it's, uh, it's an exciting week. You know, this is Missions Month, and this is Missions Sunday. And uh, I do want to encourage you to come back out on Wednesday. We don't have our normal Wednesday night Bible study this week. We do have the dinner and dessert auction. That means just bring a side dish, make a dessert, bring your checkbook. Because uh, we buy uh, each other's desserts, and then all the proceeds go to missions. And so it's an exciting thing. Um, and, uh, and you share your dessert. So although you may end up paying a lot more money for a dessert than you ever expected, we don't hoard. We share. Okay? No hard feelings at the dessert auction. Uh, but no, it's, it's an exciting time. And uh, this church has always had a heart for missions. And if you were able to hear a couple weeks ago, Deborah Mitchum, our, our chair of our missions department, shared uh, just the amount of missionaries, short-term, long-term, lifelong missionaries we sent out from this church. And if you've ever noticed what these flags are doing up here and the, and the one over there that we haven't hung yet, these are the, the, the nations, these are the people groups that we send money to, that we prayerfully support. And so we're blessed to have Bill and Lisa Walker here today. They are the co-chairmans, I missed that first service, the co-chairmans, of our International Board of World Missions of the Evangelical Methodist Church. Uh, and, uh, and that also includes multicultural ministry. And so they're going to share with us. I was trying to reflect with Bill how long we've known each other and how much stuff we've done. Um, I even probably worked with Bill as a teenager, working on missions videos and other things like that. And uh, just very blessed by their hearts for ministry. Uh, they... Um, are a resounding voice in our denomination to constantly look outside North America and say, we are a body, and the world needs Jesus. And I am so thankful for the both of them because they cannot be silent, nor will they be silent. And I'm so thankful for them. So come on up, Bill, and share with us. Will you receive them? We are very glad to be with you today here at Covenant. We always enjoy coming up, and we uh, have good, good friends here and good memories. And uh, We were coming into the parking lot this morning, and our four-year-old grandson, who's traveling with us this time, his first, uh, first time on a missions deputation-type trip, he says, I remember this place. I said, no, you don't. You don't remember this place, but your daddy has been here, and your uncle Josiah have been here. And who knows, hopefully he will come back as one. Hopefully next time he will actually be remembering it. And so we are very glad, glad to be here, glad to share with you the things that God is doing around the world. Lisa and I, we are, we are co-chairs of the Board of World Missions. Uh, that, of course, incorporates the voice and the cause of the Department of Multicultural Ministries, all of those things together <clears throat> under one thing. And we are, uh, it's, it's a little bit new for us, but... And not really because we have not really in our own minds distinguished between the two of those things. In the past, we have always worked as a team. Uh, we did it in Mexico. We did it in San Diego before that. We did it in the Bible college before that. And Lord willing, we will continue to do so. 
going forward. And so the Lord has called us both to missions. She is not just a wife who tags along in all of her husband's expeditions. She is a, God called her to be a missionary uh, before we were married. And so she, and, and so we, we, we do that, to, we do it together. And we have our, we have our, our tasks. Um, and so we, we are EMC missionaries. We are not just board chairs. We are EMC missionaries. We are EMC missionaries first. As part of that, part of what we are doing as EMC missionaries is the co-chairing of the Board of World Missions, and there's quite a bit that is involved with that. But our hearts are in ministry. Our hearts are in, are in, are in missions work. We served, I grew up in, mission, in the mission field in Bolivia. My parents, some of you, I don't know if we have any really old timers here. My parents were missionaries in Bolivia with the EMC years ago. About the time, in fact, we were our, one of our first deputation services was before this service was built when y'all were still in the Ramada Inn many, many years ago. I don't know if you were born yet or not. You were just barely born, and I was pretty small at the time. And so that goes back a long, long heritage there with, with missions, and Lisa and I served in Mexico. And then uh, since then, the Lord has taken us, uh, it sounds crazy to say it, the Lord has taken us around the world. Not nearly as much as some other people have, but he, we have had the opportunity to, to visit many of our, uh, many of our uh, conferences around the world. We want to, hopefully this year, we'll be able to visit our South Africa conference, which is our newest global conference in the EMC, recently affiliated. And we're looking forward to whatever God has for us. Uh, but our, our goal and our heart is to see missions done in two ways. Missions done uh, across uh, international boundaries, but also across ethnic uh, boundaries or ethnic di differences within, here within the United States. We want every church in the Evangelical Methodist Church to be a multi-ethnic church because one day we're all going to be multi-ethnic. And by the way, and, and we are all ethnic now, okay? You may think, well, the, there's ethnic groups. No, you, American white people, you are ethnic. You are in ethnicity, okay? Understand that. Think of yourselves that way. You are one ethnicity among many. And so we want to, we want to all come together and fellowship and be part of the family of God. So we... Uh, uh, I want to get into the Word, and I want to look at First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Now, most people in our country, while you're turning there, most people in our country are aware, to some extent aware, uh, more so than before, that America is a, is, has a growing religious plurality. Not only ethnic plurality, but religious plurality, meaning there are lots of different religions and different thoughts out there. Um, the evangelical Christianity is growing rapidly in Asia and Africa and has been doing so for a long time in the global south and the 1040 window. Uh, the, the church is, is growing rapidly in those areas. Uh, but Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, and animism are, lar are the dominant religions in the, on, basically on the other side of the world. Uh, some years ago when I was in Myanmar, the last time that I was in Myanmar, Lisa and I were there, we, we, we walked down the streets and in the markets and we saw Buddhist monks walking along and chanting, taking, picking up alms for their, for their um, activities. And we saw Muslim mosques there, not very many of those, but mostly, mostly Buddhist monks. And we realized you know, how the church has to articulate its faith, has to live intentionally for Jesus in a society of religious Pluralism, where they are by far the minority. For for most people, most citizens in Myanmar, um, not being a Christian simply means you are not Buddhist. That's 
that's really as far as it goes for many people. And the born-again Christians are out vastly outnumbered in the 1040 window. Um, the church in the Philippines, EMC in the Philippines, was growing before, before COVID, was growing at the rate of about one new church plant every month. That is a phenomenal rate. Now, they, they didn't all last. They, didn't, they weren't all large, nice buildings like this with a, with a nice group of people. Some of them were 15 people under a garage pavilion, okay? So, and some of them were, you know, half a dozen chairs in a backyard. That's a church. It may not, it may not look like a church. maybe a church building, but it's a church. And it's, it's, a, it's a group with, an, with, a clearly, with a clear leader and a, people, a group gathered to worship the Lord and to serve Him in their community. That's a church. And they had about one of those group planting every month. In fact, in, in the Philippines... In the EMC in Philippines, you cannot pastor, you cannot be ordained as an elder until you have planted a church. Now, I dare say there's a lot of EMC elders, me included, in the States that would not qualify for ordination in the Philippines. So they are serious about it, and it is wonderful to see. Now, COVID, of course, blew everything up because they weren't allowed to meet. They spent almost a year and a half in lockdown. We thought our two weeks to slow the spread was bad. No, no. A year and a half in lockdown, enforced by military at gunpoint. And if you, and if you were caught out without a pass, you were thrown in prison. So it was, it was not, they, they call it enhanced community quarantine. Very, very, sounds very nice, doesn't it? <laughs> it was very enhanced. Um, the Philippines is wide open now. They've opened up. They're, they're not doing any of that. I think masks are probably still required in many places. But they are they're back at it. They're redeveloping. They're trying to recapture what they had before, redeveloping church planting teams. And we, we communicate re regularly with uh, Reverend Rod Reyes, who is the elected superintendent after June Mateo has retired. And he and um, uh, Eric Ramirez, they, are, they were both elected with equal number of votes. So we, they decided, well, I'll serve first. one will serve first and the other one will serve second for two years, and then they'll swap. So basically, we have a general superintendent and an assistant general superintendent, and they're both hard at work. Uh, they're not worried about who's in charge. They're just worried about getting the work of the Lord moving forward and getting churches planted and reaching out. And they're working hard in their respective areas around Manila. We have a MEDS trip being planned. MEDS is M-E-D-S, medical, evangelistic, surgical, and dental, being planned for uh, January into February. Uh, it's about 16 days with travel on both ends. You don't have to be a medical professional to go. There's a few slots, as far as I know, still open. So if anyone wants to go to the Philippines in January, it's beautiful there this, in January. It's cold in Morgantown in January, is it not? You could go to tropical Philippines, all right? Just saying, it's there. So talk to me later if, you, if you're interested. Um, but they are doing great ministry there. But in the Philippines, they're not dealing so much with, with Buddhism but they're dealing with traditional Catholicism because of the Spanish, because they were a Spanish colony for a long time. And so in fact, all of the names, most of the names of people in the Philippines are Spanish. I, I go to the Philippines and I want to speak Spanish to everyone. They say, my name is Ramirez. I'm like, but it's, it's not. They don't speak Spanish. Well, very few people speak Spanish anymore in the Philippines. But the names are there. Every, some of the words in, in the, that they use are they use Spanish words for things like pants. They, they didn't have a word for pants before those Europeans came, and so they use pantalones to call pants. They don't, they don't call them that. They use the Spanish word. It's interesting. 
but in the Philippines, they are they are they have to they have to articulate their faith clearly. In Myanmar, they have to articulate their faith clearly. They have to intentionally live for Christ. When Lisa and I went in 1995 from Oskaloosa, Iowa to San Diego, California. Now you know that's an upgrade, right? Because we went in a snowstorm to in, in January, we left a snowstorm in Oskaloosa, and a week later we were on the beach in San Diego. Now that, that, that was great. We enjoyed that. But when we were preparing to go, I assumed that we would get out there, we would find the church weak, watered down, and indistinguishable from its very, sec, that very secular, godless society of California. We found exactly the opposite. We found that the church was probably stronger in California than it was in Iowa because they had to walk closely with the Lord. Otherwise, they would be absorbed and swallowed up by that society. They had to be not intentionally different from their society, but intentionally like Christ. When it's easy, it's, it's not, it's, it, when, when the going is easy, it's very easy to become like your society. Um, in our text today, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Peter writes, says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and in fear. Peter was writing to Christians who were going through hard times, writing to Christians who were oppressed, powerful, and effective. He was writing to Christians who were oppressed because it was a time of persecution in the Roman Empire. In fact, it had, up until then, it had been largely stirred up by the Jews, but it was about to really take off and become, they were become, undergo state-sponsored persecution by the Roman Empire. And that, and many, many Christians would suffer and die for their faith. They needed to be ready for suffer, ready to suffer. Um, people sometimes don't want to witness because they don't want to seem like they're weird. They don't want to seem like a, a, a religious freak. They don't want to seem intolerant. They want to fit in. Well, let me tell you, of all of the commands that God gives us in the Scripture, fitting in isn't one of them. We're never told to do that. Christians are supposed to stand out. Peter says also in his epistle that we are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. We have a job to do for the gospel of Christ. Now, in 311, Rome suddenly went from being hostile to Christians to issuing under a Christian or a sort of a Christian uh, emperor, Constantine, issuing an edict of toleration in 311 AD. His mother was Christian and he issued an edict of toleration and very quickly Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, that was really nice because it was, it was, it's nice to not get thrown to the lions. But what that led to was a relaxation of Christianity when it became, it became we got, suddenly they found themselves on easy street. And by the 12th century, the, uh, Thomas Aquinas one day walked into, I guess, the office of the Pope, Innocent II, and he had a large sum of money, the treasury of the church, or a lot of it, set out on the table before him, silver and gold and just vast wealth. And he looked up and kind of haughtily said to Thomas Aquinas as he walked in, he said, um, you see that the church is no longer in that time when she had to say, silver and gold have I none. 
Thomas Aquinas quipped uh, right back to him and said, neither can she say, take up, your bed, take up your bed and walk. And I think we see that the church at that time had become lucrative and lazy in her situation. She was better off at a time when she was suffering persecution. Because under persecution, the church went from 120 to several million in about 300 years. But by the time of the 12th century, the medieval times, the time of the Crusades, it was difficult to tell who were the Christians and who weren't. Because they weren't any different from their society. That's why we had the Crusades in the first place. Because it was an ungodly response. They should have sent missionaries, not soldiers. Christianity became socially respectable and they weren't hated anymore, but they weren't anything like Jesus. If you fit in to your society, you have to ask yourselves, am I really a Christian? He wrote to persecuted Christians and he wrote to powerful Christians. They were not politically powerful, but they were spiritually powerful. Remember that he wrote at a time of persecution, but also a time of rapid numerical growth. They were powerful not because of the money, but because they were holy. Jesus had said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If we're doing that, then things will go well. It may not go well for us. We may suffer for that but it will go well for the gospel and for the unsaved. Our objective is not to stand out from this world, but a byproduct, but it is rather a byproduct of being just like Jesus. It is easy to get caught up in our society of having a good job, a good salary, a beautiful home, popular, be athletic, have smart kids, all of those things. Those are nice. Who, doesn't, who wouldn't want that? But when we want that, when those are the things that we pursue, we forget about Jesus Christ. That's what happens. And we, let, we get so busy in our schedules, and any little thing that comes up will get priority over a church event. Well, my kids got baseball practice. Sorry, we can't be there for church. Really? Mm. Sorry, my kids got band practice. They won't be there for church. Got a band competition. It won't be at youth group. We see it all the time. You guys see it here as well. That's not what we're called to. That's a weak church. That's a church that will not survive come persecution time. That's why the church failed miserably in, when in the 700s and 800s when Islam was born and began to rapidly expand militarily across northern Africa. Northern Africa was Christian at that time. And when the armies of Islam came in, they just rolled over everyone and everyone suddenly became Muslim. People, there weren't a lot of martyrs in North Africa when Muslims came because they were weak in their faith. They acquiesced and they gave in. They fit in to the new society. 
They were powerful to defend their faith. These believers that Peter wrote to, they were powerful because they were prepared to defend their faith, not with weapons or with lawyers, but with their own words of testimony. They could articulate their faith. They knew what they believed, and they knew why they believed it. I think a lot of people, a lot of our people today in our churches could not explain to you how to be saved. I sat in, uh, I've sat in, in, in boards when we were trying to do evangelism, and, and one, of the, one of the stewards wanted to have evangelism training. This man had been in church for 20 years at least. And he says, I'm still not, I want to do evangelism training before we do this event because I'm not sure that I know how to share the gospel. What have you been doing? Where have you been? And this was before smartphones, so he wasn't just texting in church. I don't know what he was doing. People sometimes shy away from doctrine. But the gospel, but Paul was very concerned with the preservation of sound doctrine, that we need to know the correct teachings of Scripture. But it's not just about doctrine. It has to go deeper than that. It has to be deep within our hearts. It has to be our practice and our lifestyle and our attitudes and the way that we love people. It's not enough to say that I love Jesus. You have to go beyond that. You see, Hindus in India will accept Jesus. No problem. And they'll put him on the shelf right next to 8,000 other gods. But they, they, have to be, they have to be taught that he is the only God, and every other god must fall. Sometimes I think in the States, we put Jesus on a shelf right next to our other 8,000 gods. All the other things that grab for our time and money and attention and passion. The church in the West has largely fallen asleep. Christianity is in the U.S. is seriously is in serious decline, and on Europe and in Europe it is on life support. If it's that good, we are comfortable here in the U.S. as Christians because it, in, in some parts of the country, in the Bible Belt at least, it's still socially acceptable and respectable to go to church. Less so than it was when I was growing up. But I see a spiritual vitality in Myanmar, in the Philippines, in Mexico, and in other places that I do not see in the church, Cuban or in the States. Cuban churches are full and missional. They have a calm. You know what the conditions are in Cuba? Horrible. Cuban churches are full and they're missional and they want to be, they're volunteering to go overseas and be missionaries in Muslim countries. Years ago, we were attending a church in Athens, and uh, we had a, a young girl from Mexico who came and spent about six or seven weeks with us in the summertime to practice her English. Had a wonderful time. Took her to youth group on a Saturday night or a Sunday evening or whatever it was, and after, after that, she came home, and she, we were talking about it, and she says, you know, there was, just, there was really no challenge. There was, there was really nothing there. See, she had grown up in an evangelical Methodist church in Mexico, where they challenge your faith. They teach you. And, and you grow spiritually, and it's expected. The maturity of teenagers in Mexico, of Christian teenagers in Mexico, often far exceeds the average Christian adult in the U.S., in the EMC, mind you. And she said there was just no challenge. She was far superior. And that is something that is echoed. Uh, in the Philippines, they teach in youth camp, they teach you how to share the gospel in three minutes or less. That's the point of youth camp. It's not to go have fun and fish and play sports. 
They do that, probably. But the point, objective of youth camp is to be able to learn to share your faith in three minutes or less. Is to learn how they have church planting classes at youth camp. Okay? That is why Philippines was planting churches once a month. And we can hardly plant a church once a year in the U.S. That's why. Peter wrote to effective Christians. They were oppressed, they were powerful, and they were effective. As Christians, we have a job to do. The Great Commission articulates this, the making of disciples of all nations. And so fulfills Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Turn with me back to Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and turn back a few pages from Matthew. Malachi chapter 1, it's the last book of the Old Testament, verse 11. From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. So this is talking about a time when the whole world would know God. Now, there are certain sectors of the church, World Council of Churches, way back in the 80s, they started interpreting this in the present tense, not the future tense. My name is great among the Gentiles. And the, they misinterpreted it, and they ended up with the idea that all religions are currently somehow glorifying God. And so we have, you know, all religions are just different planes and the route to the same airport. That's, that's a lie. That's a lie of the devil, because Jesus is the only way but the World Council of Churches back in 89 in their San Antonio meeting summed up their heretical position saying we cannot point to any other way of salvation other than Jesus Christ. At the same time, we cannot set limits on the saving power of God. That's euphemism. We don't set limits on the saving power of God. He does. He is the one who defined how people are saved. He is the one who told us. It wasn't, it wasn't us who said, I am the, the, we didn't just make up Jesus is the only way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those weren't our words. Those were his. So we're not setting limits. We're obeying the words of Jesus when we say that that's the only way. But the idea of competing, when there are competing truth claims, the World Council churches and most liberals today want to have a dialogue, a mutual understanding. But that's not what we're called to. Their idea of dialogue is this, quote, Many Christians seek ways to be committed to their own faith and yet be open to others. Some use spiritual disciplines from other religions, other religious traditions to deepen their Christian faith and prayer. Are you kidding me? Spiritual religious, excuse me, spiritual disciplines from other religions? You know what that's called? Yoga. Yoga is a spiritual discipline from Hinduism. That, is not, that will not deepen your relationship with God. That's not just exercise, folks. That is Hinduism. That's what that is. Um, and it's not just that. There are other things that people do. The idea that you can somehow be eclectic and you can pull a little bit of this and a little bit of that, that is not Christianity. That may be what we see more and more in the States, but that is not Christianity. Chrislam is growing at an alarming rate. Chrislam is the mixing of Islam and Christianity. Who knew that could happen? Well, it is. 
G.K. Chesterton said that having, is, is credited with having said, a man who won't believe in God will believe in anything. We might easily change it to will fall for anything. And the World Council of Churches approach is not one of articulating the Christian faith in a pluralistic society or living for Jesus in a pluralistic society. Their idea is exactly the opposite of that. Their idea is fitting in. Jesus did not come to fit in. He said, I've not come, I have come to call sinners to repent. Many evangelicals do not agree with what the World Council of Churches says, but sometimes we do what they do, and we blend in. The friendliest thing that you can do for a people of a different religion is to show them God's love through the deeds of through your deeds, and to tell them of God's salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know how to do that, you need to learn how to do that. It's not difficult to share the gospel. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out because you can do it in three minutes or less. Peter writes to us of something that is the opposite of dialogue. Dialogue is a two-way conversation where all, all opinions are equally valid. That is not what we're supposed to be doing. You can do that about sports. You can discuss which baseball team you prefer. You can talk about your favorite football team and the stats and banter back and forth. And you can foolishly say that Georgia is no longer the top pick to win the title and be dead wrong about that because we are going to win it. Go dogs. But when it comes to our faith, we do not do that. It is not two-way. It is one way. It is, the, it is those who are saved proclaiming the truth to those who are not. It's not about hearing them or, letting, or adopting practices from their religion to deepen our own. No, 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 we're not doing that foolishness. We're giving them the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. Because they're lost. They're lost without it. And that is what they need. So Peter says, no, do not, you're not dialoguing. You are defending the faith. You are proclaiming the truth. He didn't dialogue on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, but he, he taught them, he contextualized it in a way that they could understand it. He spoke to them about the unknown God, which they were all about. You know, one more on the, on the shelf of 8,000. He says, this unknown God says, no more of the others. Put all the other ones away. Because this unknown God is the creator of heaven and earth, and from one man he created all flesh. From one blood, he created all ethnicities. And he moves and he puts them in and determines the places where they should live in the exact times. This is the God that I'm telling you about. And Paul was very bold, and some believed and some did not. That's what happens. Some will believe and some will not. And we're not responsible for figuring out who does and who doesn't. Our job is to be faithful and to be diligent and to preach the truth. Sometimes we like to think of missions as sending money to other people to do things in other places, or even going on a missions trip and sharing the gospel. But let me ask you, if you go on a missions trip and you're encouraged and you're sharing the gospel and you're looking for opportunities to, to witness, do you come back home and are you doing the same thing? Or do you slide back into a normal routine of fitting in? Happens a lot. See, missions over there, stands on a foundation of evangelism here. 
in every day. And if we're not doing it here, we won't do it elsewhere. So we need to do it here. We need to live it that way and look for those opportunities to share the gospel, to witness, not dialogue, but to witness. Many opportunities abound around us. For all of the churches that are here in the Morgantown area in this county, we have no, you have not run out of sinners. Amen? Anyone think you run out of sinners? No, you haven't. And probably find you won't have to drive very far to find you a whole pile of them real quick. Um, there are people here from all over the world. Not only do we have plenty of sinners, we have plenty of ethnicities. And I thank God for that. That's wonderful. Because we can do, we can do a lot of cross-cultural ministry without leaving your county. Some people have come with a different worldview and have challenging questions. Well, okay, you may not be up to answering them, but it's time to do a little study. If that makes you nervous, that's great. You depend on God the more nervous you are. But you need to be ready. You don't need to be a Christian out there witnessing and be out of practice in articulating and defending the faith. Moody Aviation is one of the premier, I think they don't do this anymore, but they were, one of, they were the premier missionary aviation training school. They were the best that there was. And they trained pilots to fly in all kinds of conditions around the world as missionary pilots. They had on their publications, they had that they discouraged, they would not allow anyone to come and take flight training in the, that who's going to be a missionary, but not a missionary pilot. To, you know, because maybe some people say, well, just in case the pilot has a medical emergency, wouldn't it be nice to have someone else in the airplane who also knows how to fly? Sounds logical, right? Moody Aviation had on their statement, there's nothing more dangerous than an unpracticed pilot at the controls of an airplane. I would suggest to you that there is nothing more dangerous than an undisciplined Christian trying to represent Christ in our world. We need to be ready. We need to be on our game. We need to know what we're saying, why, what we believe, why we believe it, how to say it, and do it right. You may get asked a question you don't know the answer to. It's not a problem. You say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll, but I'll find out, and I'll come back to you. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to research Islam. You don't have to understand Buddhism. But you do need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we need to know. You need to know the word of God. But on the other hand, you also need to know the God of the Word. It's not just theology. It's not just doctrine. He has to live in your heart. You have to be full of His Holy Spirit. Walk with Him every day. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord strengthen you as you live for Him and do missions every single day right here in Morgantown. God bless you. Thank you, Bill. We're going to dim the lights down and uh, have a time of worship and reflection. I love the fact that we have a mission speaker here today that challenges us to evangelize in our community. And uh, what I have took from both messages I've heard today is you'll never heart have a heart for international missions unless you're willing to reach your neighbors, co-workers, friends, and your family that live here. And, uh, and so you may be saying today, you know, I, I don't know how to share my faith. 
you know what you can do? Just tell your story. You don't have to know what passage of Scripture and recite chapter and verse and all of that. Just tell them your story. This is who I was. This is how Jesus came into my life. And this is who I am today. This is why I live the way I live. That's all you got to do. Nobody can argue with your testimony. And so this morning as we come to this time of prayer and reflection, uh, God may be laying specific people on your heart to pray for. I want you to pray for them. Maybe he's already presented you with a challenge of who he wants you to share with and, and how he wants you to do it. And so you may be in the seat just struggling and squirming and saying, God, I don't want to do that. And he's saying, well, you got to. That's why I designed you. Or some of you may even be prompted to do more. You know, we, we do live in a place in an area now where the, the world is here. We have a university in our town. People from all over the world come from this little place in the hills in Morgantown. And, uh, and so we have an opportunity to reach the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we support InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's why we have the West Virginia flag over there. And, uh, and so anyway, as we come to this time of prayer, uh, just take the time to, to think and reflect and seek God's will and allow him to challenge you. You know what? You don't want to come to a youth group where they're not challenged. You got challenged this morning. Now respond as God leads.